Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Mikla Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a Changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. I'm recording today's episode in the British Library, where I'm joined by Luke Butterley, who I first came across earlier on this year through a blog post that he'd written for Verso, which was called Northern Ireland's Hidden Borders. Luke, would you like to start by explaining a little bit about what you were trying to do in that blog? Sure. Well, like I talked about in that blog and some uh, subsequent work, there's been this unifying thread in debates around Brexit in relation to Ireland to avoid um, borders of the past. And we speak about this kind of hard border in Ireland. And for a lot of Ireland's recent history, um, there has been a very hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And throughout the conflict known as the Troubles, that featured um, British Army checkpoints, watchtowers, you name it. Following the um, 1998 Belfast Good Friday Agreement, this infrastructure slowly kind of came down, evaporated, and the border became what we call it today. You know, throughout the Brexit debate, we call it a frictionless border, an invisible border. You pass it by without noticing. Uh, you see all the kind of media reports of journalists going out there and noticing the only difference is that maybe their cell phone has changed the network or uh, road signs are go from miles to kilometers. So that's the kind of common, common understanding of the border, how it is today. And while this was completely absent in the debates before the Brexit referendum, after that, there's been a lot of insistence from, you know, politicians and society in Britain and Ireland and the EU about um, returning to those hard borders of the past. But what I wanted to look at is what do those narratives uh, hide or obscure? What is that border like today and what it might look like um, post-Brexit? I think that's a really good introduction to the kind of short history of how the border has been imagined, I suppose, and mobilised in kind of politics and more publicly. And I think what's been really notable to me um, in looking at the Brexit debate is um, how a particular understanding of that border, as you said, as frictionless, has um, become animated through the debate. But I think what you wanted to show was a kind of question of, I suppose, who was able to cross that border, who was able to imagine that that border wasn't even there, I suppose. The kind of silencing of the border within that, I suppose. So could you explain a little bit about some of the things that you'd started to observe in respect to that border that people might not commonly recognise? Sure. Well, one of the main things that is often actually missing, I think, from the debates is in terms of the movement of peoples, the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the border between Ireland and the UK, is a border. It is an international frontier, um, demarking two different states with two different political, um, economic and immigration regimes. And while we talk about the border as being open and you can pass it by without uh, noticing, for many people who live on the island of Ireland or in Britain, that is a border and has consequences if you cross it. 
So, for example, if you are an asylum seeker living in Donegal, which is in the Republic of Ireland, and you need to go to um, Dublin, the capital, for an interview with an immigration lawyer or uh, you know, a court hearing or so on, the quickest and most straightforward way would be to pass through the city of Derry, which is in Northern Ireland. However, you are legally barred from doing this. If you took that um, route, um, you would you know, be invalidating your, your current visa and just running into a whole load of, of trouble. And this also relates to people who have the right to cross the border, but might again be other. So something we've heard a lot about throughout the Brexit debates is what the impact of a hard border would be on farmers, because a lot of farmers land straddles the uh, border. You know, we hear about how um, goods are uh, move, you know, across the border between the two states um, several times during their kind of manufacture and processing. And so, you know, it's obvious that the same applies to workers. And 20% of the agricultural workers in Northern Ireland are migrants, uh, mostly from the EU. So that's one in five. And, you know, looking into this, I was just like looking through the various kind of the few stories that make it into the news. And one of them was about a group of farm workers who um, live and work mostly in Northern Ireland, but were traveling down to the south for work, were stopped at an immigration checkpoint. And no one had passports because you don't assume you need them. They were all taken and detained to a police station for several hours. And, you know, were only uh, only released um, later that night when their employer went down and, and, and spoke with the police about it. I mean, I think that there are some issues here which are to do with how the freedom of movement within the EU was laid on top of a common travel area, which is a free movement regime probably, as, as we've heard before, isn't actually fully legislated for, but has been a kind of a, an agreement between Ireland and the UK, which permits the free movement of their citizens. So UK citizens who want to move between the UK and Ireland um, and Irish citizens who want to move between Ireland and the UK. But this is somehow kind of been caught up in the EU free movement regime in a what looks like a, a well it's never had to be divided before it's never there's never had to be a distinction between those two since the implementation of freedom of movement within the EU but that does raise particular issues for Britain's withdrawal from the EU in, in some ways I don't know if that's very clear. Yeah well I think an important thing to know about when we when we think about those kind of uh, potential changes is about how the border exists today and again like I was saying this kind of common narrative prevailing narrative is that there are no border controls today and so what will happen in the future however like I mentioned with the farm workers there are border controls and the Irish and British police and immigration authorities do carry out checks along uh, Northern Ireland's borders and have done so since at least 2003, so for over 15 years. I think one of the things that you have been really keen to point out is the way in which the border has been practiced and enforced for some people. It's not, it's not an invisible or hidden or seamless border for everyone. And you have kind of identified some operations that were happening around the border to enforce immigration control, essentially. Yes, we hear about the border. It's it's an open border. And as, you know, um, 
as was mentioned in, in previous uh, podcasts on the series, we have the common travel area that allows free movement of Irish and British citizens um, between Ireland and Britain. However, it only applies to Irish and British citizens. So um, for at least since 2003, Irish and British police forces have enacted kind of clandestine or what they call non-routine immigration controls at the border. Um, so while most people can cross the border without noticing it, there exists this um, operation, it's known as Operation Gull, and um, yeah, police and immigration officers can and do check cross-border buses, they search trains, they stop private cars. And so on these um, cross-border checks, checks on cross-border buses, this is where the issue of racial profiling has most prominently featured against, against the Irish police. Because the fact that an Irish or British person doesn't need their passport, when a Irish police officer comes and asks someone for their passport and you don't need it, what happens then? If you meet a unrealistic, if it ever existed, conception of what an Irish or British person looks and sounds like, then an Irish police officer will wave you on without many questions. If you don't fall into that category, if you are a um, racial or, or ethnic minority living in Ireland, then you don't, you, you can't avail of that. You are in that kind of situation where you have to carry your passport to prove that you don't need to carry your passport. And um, I've spoken with people living in Ireland, living in Nor Northern Ireland, who, who have to go through this on a daily basis. One man, um, Mohammed, he is a nurse and uh, writer in Belfast. And um, he's originally from Palestine, but um, British citizen now, and therefore has the right to cross that border. And he often goes from his home in Belfast down to Dublin, but says that it's, it's a right, but it's a meaningless right for him. He'll, he'll always be controlled and he'll always have to carry his passport. He says he said in a quote that it doesn't matter if he's Mohammed the Palestinian or Mohammed the British citizen, you know, he'll still face that same level of uh, interrogation. I think that this really um, chimes very much with a lot of the uh, work that we've been doing with British citizens, British people of colour who live in the EU, who have always found themselves scrutinised precisely for their rights to be where they are because their national identity is questioned. They're, you know, they're more likely to be stopped. They're more likely to be asked, well, you know, okay, you say you're British, but really, where, where, where do you come from originally? And I guess that this really does point to a shape of uh, national identity and belonging where people assume that in order to be Irish or in order to be British, you must therefore, well, be white, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And um, I, I was reading a, a piece recently by Gary Young. It's from a couple of years ago. But he, he, he says in it that borders have always been a tense issue for me, with those in uniform struggling to match the color of my face to the crest on my passport. How could it be otherwise? And so that's something that, you know, people throughout the EU face. And it's particularly so in Ireland and especially kind of at these, at these checks. And it brings me on to a... Another important point about where the Irish border is policed. So it is policed along the land border that we all kind of know about, but where else is it policed? And so there are um, 
daily ferry routes between towns in Northern Ireland and towns in uh, Scotland and England. And so this is, never mind a, a journey within the common travel area, this is a domestic journey within the UK you know, legally, and is in a sense no difference between taking a bus from Bristol to London, crossing two different jurisdictions in the UK. However, that isn't the reality again for for migrants who are traveling and for British and Irish citizens of color. And last year there was um, one of, again, the few cases that makes it into the news of a black British lawyer living in Northern Ireland and um, traveling between his home in, in, in the north and Scotland several times over a couple of days uh, for work. And each time, he said, officers stationed at the ferry ports singled him out for questioning. And he was carrying his British passport. But he says, he, he was quoted as saying, basically, they didn't kind of, they didn't believe it was mine. You know what I mean? And uh, there was no question that it wasn't his. But because he was black, um, he kind of a didn't fit into their um, view of what a British Irish person could look like, and therefore, you know, uh, necessitated that kind of further level of questioning: where are you coming from? What are you work working at? Where were you born? And so, it's interesting: a that this happens, and b that we kind of allow it to happen. Like I say, if those kind of checks were happening on the train between. Scotland and, and England, um, there would rightfully be uproar about it. But here it kind of operates in silence. I think one of the really notable messages that's kind of coming across from, from what you're saying is that when we're thinking about Brexit and we're thinking about the relationship between Britain and Ireland, there's a particular politics of the border that's mobilised to talk around that, which is to do with Ireland's history with Britain. It is to do with the Troubles, it's to do with the Good Friday Agreement. And yet there's this other politics of the border that has always been enacted that everybody is very, very quiet about. Would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. And one, one of the uh, people I spoke with, Professor Colin Harvey in Belfast, I think he said it best. He said, this is a hidden issue, but not for the people affected by it. And it has definitely been completely absent in the long debates before Brexit was even a possibility. Now there is a new focus on the border um, because of Brexit. However, this issue is still uh, largely absent, definitely in British media and, and, and British debates, but even even in Ireland, even in, in, in Northern Ireland, there is some movement. There's always been some discussion. There's been various reports from uh, major human rights organizations throughout the like, kind of past 15 years or so. And of late, I guess Brexit has allowed human rights groups that kind of hook to kind of get it into the spotlight in a way that it hasn't been before. It's still very niche, but for example, the Republic of Ireland is being um, is currently being considered by the uh, UN uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and so um, you know NGOs and so on are over there in Geneva now talking with the committee about the issues um, in that are going on in Ireland and this specific issue about um, racial profiling at the Irish border. Um, has been raised, for example. Two human rights groups, one based in the North, one based in the Republic, have written recently to the, um, the, the head of the police and other authorities asking for information on this and kind of raising complaints. And a com an equality complaint has been raised against a 
bus service that crosses the border. A lot of the bus services are actually private, but one is um, publicly owned. And so they have raised a complaint against them. And we've seen, uh, you know, you see precedent for this in uh, the U.S. at the moment. In the U.S. it's the same kind of thing. There's a lot of uh, immigration of, uh, officials doing um, passport and ID checks on Greyhound buses and um, civil liberty groups have, have raised complaints against them there. So it is getting um, some spotlight, but it is, again, very niche. But I, again, when I spoke with people for this, they weren't surprised. And two things were interesting with that. One is that it's a niche thing, but it, it's known to so many people who, 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 who it's affected themselves directly. So even people I was speaking with from universities or, um, you know, NGOs or so on, who, who I wasn't speaking for them about their personal experiences, nonetheless shared their personal experiences. They were like, oh yeah, of course, you know, when I was going up there for work, I was racially profiled um, and it's quite commonly known. But, you know, throughout Britain and throughout Ireland, issues that affect people who are denied kind of political currency always are, are, are kind of pushed to, to the back burner. I think it's really, really important that now that there is this focus on the border, because, okay, in the lead up to the referendum, perhaps people have gone a little bit quiet about the border, that we also highlight this racial politics of the border, which could easily continue to be sidelined, actually. So I think this is really, really important work that you've been doing to kind of document and to demonstrate those racial operations at the border on both sides both by the British and, and by the Irish in cooperation almost. I wondered, I mean, the other thing that you have been doing is you've been looking at the case of, I think, Irish citizens in the UK and British citizens in, in Ireland or UK nationals in Ireland might be more 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 appropriate way of framing that. And thinking about what uh, Brexit means for them within the context of the common travel area. And you've kind of shone a spotlight on who, who may be bordered additionally through Brexit, who we may not be focusing on at this point in time. Yeah, so obviously um, Irish people living in, in Britain and, and, and uh, UK nationals living in Ireland uh, has been going on for, for many, many decades and there's hundreds of thousands of our fellow nationals in both nations. And so when uh, Brexit came up, there was obviously a lot of worry about what is the situation for EU nationals in Britain and what will the future situation be for UK nationals in the EU. One area where people worried less was about Ireland and Britain and the kind of reliance um, from governments in, in Dublin and London and so on was we have what's called the common tra travel area. This grants almost the same rights as a citizen in, in each other's country to work and vote and, and so on. This predates the European Union and our membership to it. And therefore, we don't really have to worry about, worry about us. And that is largely the case. We'll see how it's all going to play out, but it is, it is largely the case. For example, UK nationals living in the Republic of Ireland have almost the exact same rights as an Irish citizen. And that is very unlikely to change, in my opinion, post-Brexit. However, again, it's perhaps the, the people in the minority, the people at the margins that have been um, not thought about, have been left out. So um, I looked at a particular issue with two other journalists Natalie Bloomer and uh, Samir uh, Jaraj in a couple of pieces, one in the Irish Times and then a subsequent one in the Irish Examiner. 
And this was looking at the thousands of British families currently living in Ireland who have family members, their spouses, their parents, their children who are from outside of the European Union. So Pakistan, the United States, and so on. And so currently and previously, British nationals, um, thanks to EU freedom of movement rules, an EU citizen, in this case British, could move to another EU country, in this case Ireland, with their non-EU spouses. And they could do this with ease. They would do this without having to meet the current domestic requirements, such as income thresholds and so on. And this is, you know, like a core part of um, freedom of movement rules, they said um, when kind of drafting them that it's important that EU members are able to move with their non-EU family members and not have to meet domestic requirements, otherwise they won't actually be able to move because throughout the EU, the requirements for non-EU people to, to move and settle there are generally very, very restrictive. So what we looked at is what is going to happen to these British families living in Ireland with their family members from outside of the EU post-Brexit, because currently they rely on EU freedom of movement rights. Post-Brexit, they won't be EU citizens. So on what basis will their family members live there? And when we looked into it, currently anyways, there is no basis. And these families, and there's several thousand of them, were all uh, sent letters earlier this year from the Department of Justice, you know, three years into Brexit saying that in the event of a no-deal Brexit, which was looking increasingly likely in late October, your current right to reside in Ireland will end, and we will um, look about transferring you to what they called quote-unquote domestic arrangements, and, um, you know, don't worry about it. But obviously, people were very worried about it and have been very worried about it since Brexit, uh, since the referendum vote happened. There's obviously been a lot of confusion, a lot of the people even we spoke to thought that their family members were covered by the common travel area, but obviously the common travel area is quite old and uh, was written in a period when generally British citizens living in Ireland weren't EU citizens, for, for example. So we spoke, me and uh, those other two journalists, we spoke with people affected by this, we spoke with NGOs, we spoke with lawyers, and they were all very, very worried about what was going to come next, partially because of the silence and the lack of information from the government. We've asked the relevant department, the Department of Justice, several times for, uh, for detailed plans or any real information. They've all just said the line of, we'll, um, we'll sort something out when it happens. But partially why families are worried and, and, and NGOs and lawyers are worried is that they see as one of the perhaps best case scenarios for British citizens would be that they would be treated as Irish citizens. However, that would mean um, that they would fall under domestic um, rules for their non-EU family members and their uh, American husband or Pakistani wife or what have you would have to, um, you know, that family unit would then have to meet various income thresholds. They're one thing for your spouse. They're a whole other ballgame if you have dependent parents. It's basically, you know, something that people wouldn't be able to to ever meet, or 99% uh, of the population anyways. And um, moving back to the UK, while of course undesirable anyways, is not even an option because since um, 
2013 or so, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she introduced uh, very restrictive um, rules for British citizens to have their non-EU family members living with them. Um, so, you know, a lot of families are wondering, what will we do? Would our family have to split up? We'd have to move to some third country altogether. Yeah, it's causing a lot of anxiety. This was um, an additional benefit uh, that was never extended to nationals, either in Ireland or in the UK, in fact. So I think it's, I can understand why that is very, very alarming. I know in the case of, of, of Irish citizens in the UK, for example, that at least settled status might offer one route of them falling within the terms of the withdrawal agreement. But I think that the case of UK nationals is a little bit different because I'm, I'm not sure, sure what options there are for them in Ireland. I guess the possible options, and these are political options as much as legal ones, one is for, uh, because it is, it is a, a few thousand people in the Republic, we're a, a country of, of four million or so, it's not a huge number. And um, one option that we were told about through by lawyers and NGOs would just be for the Irish government to say, the people in this situation will just retain their rights and amnesty, essentially, until you know they reach a situation where they can apply for permanent residency or what have you. That's one option. Wouldn't cost them much. People are wondering why they haven't done that. The second option, like I mentioned, was that British citizens would be treated under the same rules as Irish citizens, and um, now as uh, EU citizens have their family over, basically the requirements are, are very, very low. Under domestic regime, they're quite difficult. And so there is that real fear that many people, and indeed some of the people we spoke with, they would not be able to meet those new thresholds. There's a third scenario where British citizens could be treated the same as non-EU citizens in terms of having their non-EU family members join them. That's again, even more restrictive probably less likely, but those are the kind of uh, situations that, that are open to them. And so it's, it's one thing, the, the various scenarios, and I think if people knew what it was that people could plan or appeal or, or what have you, but people just don't know what, uh, what the future is going to bring. But nonetheless, it was, it was interesting speaking with families. While they were, were very anxious and, and wished that you know, a solution would be found for them, so much of the ire was still nonetheless against the British Home Office because many families, you know, while they now really enjoy Ireland, only ended up living in Ireland because the immigration rules in the UK were so restrictive that they couldn't uh, live there. And there was a kind of a feeling among people we spoke with that Ireland didn't cause Brexit, Ireland didn't cause this rupture. And while they wish they would kind of do something now to, to sort them out in their situation, they are aware of who's the driving force, I guess. One other thing that's important to mention is who we're talking about now are, are UK citizens who are living now in Ireland with their non-EU family members. There's also the situation of UK citizens living in Ireland who have applied for their non-EU family members to join them. And here is where people are facing particularly difficulty. And here is where you can see the kind of discrepancy of where your partner comes from. So if you are if your partner is from the US, for example, that partner can just fly into Dublin airport, land there, and then make that application in country, right? So they're with you that whole time that they're applying. For someone from Pakistan or Bangladesh, they don't have that right. 
and people are facing very, very, very long delays into the years to get these processed, even though they're supposed to be processed in a matter of months. They're facing a lot of uh, several years wait. So a worry is what will happen to people the day Brexit happens, be it no deal or, or what have you, for people who are not in country, whose applications are still pending. Will they be cut out? Will they be treated? You know, will uh, they be treated as they are now? Will they be treated under different rules? Again, they don't know. Again, a lot of anxiety in this situation. I think that really shows how um, how complex bordering regimes are, even within the perceived kind of free movement, frictionless regimes that we've become used to between Britain and Ireland and within the EU, and how we always have to ask that question about who is movement free for and who is actually scrutinised for their right to move, their right to cross borders, wherever those borders may be. And that those borders are as much symbolic as they are legal, political, physical. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think some of the approach from, from the Irish government on this has been kind of quite telling. Like if we're looking uh, back to the controls that happen on the Irish border, this was um, raised um, by a senator in the Shannon in our upper house of parliament. And the relevant minister said... These checks happen, but they, quote, do not impact upon UK, Irish or EU citizens. And, you know, this is blatantly not true because I've spoke with people in all of those categories um, who, who it did and does impact upon. So, yeah, so I would say that just kind of like in general, the people who are in these situations, which where our society has, has placed them at the margins, who don't fit into our various na narratives. They risk um, being caught out by the present situation and also the, the solution, um, whatever solution comes forward. Um, so there is you know, a lot of uh, focus on at the moment uh, on the border. What will that look like in the future? There is perhaps now f a focus that those checks and so on will be more at the sea border. But again, almost all of this discussion has been around the movement of goods and not the movement of people. I, for one, think that there will be an intensification of um, at least the existing operations and perhaps new ones and so on at the border, along that land border, along the sea border, but also elsewhere. And Bernadette McAlisky, a veteran civil rights campaigner in Ireland, was asked about this kind of situation recently. And she said, I'll tell you where the border is. The border is in the factory. The border is in the hospital. The border is in the school. And so what obviously she's referring to is what is called the hostile environment, whereby um, public and private services more and more and more take on the role of um, bordering and border guards. And a particular worry, perhaps, in Northern Ireland and this has been kind of vaguely referenced in um, various reports, is about, okay, maybe it won't be checks on the border, maybe there doesn't need to be checks on the border. Okay, there already is checks, but you know what I mean, future checks, because those checks happen in, in country. And so the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee in, in, in Westminster worried about this and said, you know, we don't want a situation where Northern Ireland is the most heavily policed um, uh, kind of immigration zone on these islands. So there's still a lot to, um, a lot for bad play, a lot to be worked out. Um, but I think that if we don't understand how things were and how things are today, 
you know, we're not going to have a full picture, a full understanding of how things might come tomorrow once Brexit finally finally begins. Because obviously this past three years hasn't even been Brexit. Brexit is yet to start. I think that's been really great in demonstrating the kind of the pernicious and insidious functioning of borders in everyday lives for some people, notably for people who are racialized as, as other to the Irish project or to the British project. So thank you very much, Luke. Thank you. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast with me, Dr. Mikola Benson. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by searching for Brexit Brits Abroad on iTunes and Libsyn. And to join in the conversation, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at BrexPatsEU, and you can visit our Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. To find out more about the project, visit our brand new website, that's BrexitBritsAbroad.org. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.